This is Robbie Martin from Media Roots Radio. What you're about to listen to is a 25-minute preview of our ongoing The Freemasonic History of the United States podcast series. This is a clip that intros some context about the Whig Party and John Quincy Adams and sort of jumps into a point where I'm discussing Abraham Lincoln's quasi-anti-war stance against the Mexican-American War and how he was a self-identified Whig Party member at the time. So we're going to jump right into that section of the podcast but focus on a question that I ask in the podcast. The idea of John Quincy Adams being the most credible anti-Mason but also potentially an anti-Masonic gatekeeper if you will. So I hope you enjoy this section from part four of the Freemasonic history of the United States called The Grand Obelisk, A Golden Age of Fraternalism and the 33rd Degree. And if you'd like to get access to the entire series, which is now about 17 hours in length and four parts and will continue into a part five and part six, you can become a Patreon subscriber of ours for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash Radio. Thanks. But what's also interesting from this statement that Lincoln makes is that Lincoln was calling himself a Whig. Now, we don't hear very much about the Whigs coming from the anti-Masonic party in history. We hear a little bit about the Whigs when we learn about American history, but not so much what the Whigs were originally representing, which was literally a one-trick pony political party called the Anti-Masonic Party. It was a political party that was formed around opposing Freemasonry. And Freemasonry was so big at that time that that represented a lot of meaning to people. If something was anti-Masonic, then that with it also carried a lot of meaning, much more meaning than it would today to say you are anti-Masonic. People would be like, the fuck does that mean you're what does that mean you're anti-masonic you're anti like going to that like local lodge that's like down the street with that like compass and protractor symbol on it what the hell are you talking about one of the most outspoken critics of the war whig party member henry clay abraham lincoln's idol anti-masonic party presidential nominee his son henry clay jr died in the Mexican War. John J. Hardin of Illinois, a Whig political rival of Abraham Lincoln, also died in battle. Now, a year into this war, while John Adams, John Quincy Adams, was a sitting congressman and was one of the quote-unquote stubborn 14 who voted against it, comes the inexplicably timed release of Notes on the Masonic Institution, a collection of letters written by John Quincy Adams to different people in the aftermath of the Morgan Affair, mostly from the late 1830s. These letters were compiled into a published book that was publicly circulated and sold. Now, why did John Quincy Adams decide to have this published now? It's hard to say. but. Let's depart for a second, but I promise you we'll return back to the story of how the Mexican-American War 
ended. But let's depart to John Quincy Adams' actual book, Notes on the Masonic Institution, and sort of what it meant in the larger historical context, and also how historians look at anti-Masonry today, and look at Masonic influences today, and what's considered an acceptable way to look at it, and what's considered maybe too conspiratorial or hyperbolic or paranoid. I raised a question earlier in this podcast series. The question being, even after all this anti-Masonic literature and all these anti-Masonic exposés of Freemasonry, why was it that the American Revolution itself and the American Founding Fathers were not seen as part of some kind of elitist Masonic conspiracy? And even in the anti-Masonic movement, the Founding Fathers were still largely revered. But why was this? Why was it that the anti-Masonic movement and some of its leading ideas, some of its more popular ideas, did not attack the Founding Fathers or the American Revolution itself as being a Masonic conspiracy? Well, part of that can be explained by the inclusion of John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, in the anti-Masonic movement. You could almost call him a gatekeeper, if you will, because what he did was he essentially completely severed and decoupled his own father's legacy and the legacy of George Washington and other founding fathers from the corruption of Freemasonry that he believed he clearly saw materialize in the early 1800s. John Quincy Adams, in his book, Notes on the Masonic Institution, and he expresses very strong anti-Masonic sentiment. But what you'll notice immediately in the first letter that I'm about to read you is that John Adams was also very displeased with Masons trying to undermine John Quincy Adams' anti-Masonic ideas by claiming that John Quincy Adams' father revered Masonry and was actually somehow associated with their institution. John Quincy Adams wanted to make it very clear that that was not the case. August 22nd, 1831. John Quincy Adams, in a letter, says, Sir, the letter from my father to the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts which Mr. Shepard has thought proper to introduce into his address was a complimentary answer to a friendly and patriotic address of the Grand Lodge to him. In it, he expressly states that he had never been initiated in the order. He therefore knew nothing of their secrets, their oaths, nor their penalties. Far less had their practical operation been revealed by the murder of William Morgan, nor had the hand of the Avenger of Blood been arrested for five long years, and probably forever, by the contumacy of witnesses setting justice at defiance in her own sanctuary. Nor had the trial of an accomplice in guilt marked the influence of one juror under Masonic oaths upon the verdict of his eleven fellows. That Mr. Shepard should resort to a letter from my father, a professedly uninitiated man, 
to liberate the Masonic institution from the unrefuted charge of unlawful oaths, of horrible and disgusting penalties and secrets, the divulging of which has been punished by a murder unsurpassed in human atrocity, is to me passing strange. All that my father knew of Masonry in 1798 was that it was favorable to the support of civil authority, and this he inferred from the characters of intimate friends of his and the excellent men who had been members of the society. The inference was surely natural, but he had never seen the civil authority in conflict with Masonry itself. To speak of the Masonic institution as favorable to the support of civil authority at this day and in this country would be a mockery of the common sense and sensibility of mankind. My father says he had known the love of the fine arts, the delight in hospitality, and the devotion to humanity of the Masonic fraternity. All these qualities, no doubt, then were and yet are conspicuous in many members of the society. They, and qualities of the yet higher order, were not less conspicuous in the order of the Jesuits. They were conspicuous in many of the monastic orders, in the Inquisition itself, whose ministers in the very act of burning the body of a heretic to death were always actuated by the tenderest and most humane regard for the salvation of his soul. The use of my father's name for the purposes to which Mr. Shepherd would now apply it is an injury to his memory, which I deem it in my duty as far as may be in my power to redress. You observe, he says, he had never been initiated in the Masonic order, and I have more than once heard from his own lips why he had never enjoyed that felicity. Mr. Jeremy Gridley, whom he mentions as having been his intimate friend, was Grand Master of the Massachusetts Grand Lodge. He was also the Attorney General of the Crown, when in October 1758 my father, having finished his law studies and his schoolkeeping at Worcester, presented himself a stranger, poor, friendless, and obscure, to ask of him the favor to present him to the Superior Court of the Province. The use of the name Washington to give an odor of sanctity to the institution as it now stands, exposed to the world, is in my opinion as unwarrantable as that of my father's name. On the moral side of human existence, there is no name for which I entertain a veneration more profound for that of Washington, but he was never called to consider the Masonic order in the light in which it must now be viewed. If he had been, we have a pledge of what his conduct would have been, far more authoritative than the mere fact of his having been a mason could be in favor of the brotherhood. Another letter from September 21st, 1831 to a man named Mr. Chandler, John Quincy Adams says, Mr. Chandler has truly informed you that I am a zealous anti-mason to the extent it is my deliberate opinion that from the time of the commission of the crimes committed at the kidnapping and murder of William Morgan, it became the solemn and sacred civic and social duty of every Masonic lodge in the United States either to dissolve itself or to discard forever all administration of oaths and penalties and all injunctions of secrecy of any kind to its members. I believed it also their duty, though of less imperious obligation, to abolish all their ill-assorted honorific titles and childish or ridiculous pageants. Now, notice there that Adams is an extremely passionate anti-Mason. He wants people to see him that way. Feels so strongly about his anti-Masonic views that he believes all Masonic lodges in the United States in the early 1830s when he wrote this letter should dissolve themselves. Those are pretty strong views. 
but notice how he's equally as passionate in trying to absolve his father and his father's friends like George Washington and other founding fathers from having anything to do with this corruption of the Masonic institution. Even though John Quincy Adams says that the appreciation that his father had for Freemasons appreciation for the arts and music is no different from appreciating the Catholics appreciation for art and music at the same time during the Inquisition, which is an interesting comment because it sort of goes back a little bit on what he's saying. But again, this is an interesting example of sort of what I think most historians agree is the final, most credible word on anti-Masonry. And that's important that it's considered probably the most credible document on anti-Masonry among historians today because I think it does a really good job of absolving the Founding Fathers and decoupling the idea that Masonry had corruption and was a corrupt aristocratic institution from the Founding Fathers' legacy. So this enabled anti-Masons at the time to hold two views at once, that the Founding Fathers were heroic, noble men who should be looked up to, and that the Freemasonic institution was a corrupt, elitist organization that practiced spooky occult rituals. Now this book, Letters on the Masonic Institution, published by John Quincy Adams, wasn't published until 1847, right in the middle of the Mexican-American War. It's still unclear why he chose this time to release this book. Most of the letters I'm reading to you are from the early 1830s. He also made these views widely known in the public square. These weren't just private correspondences that he didn't reveal to the public until the late 1840s. It was already very well known that he was strongly anti-Mason. But here's an interesting argument, because John Quincy Adams was also a very successful lawyer. He was the defense attorney in the Supreme Court case for the Amistad crew, including Josephs and Kay. And he makes an interesting argument, coming from the perspective of a lawyer, of why he thinks that the fraternity itself, the Masonic values themselves, are what the motive was for the murder. And he indicts the fraternity itself. And this is some interesting logic he's using to go after the whole entire structure of Freemasonry, even though Masonry was in a hierarchy and had all these different independent chapters. He's sort of framing it as the actual fraternity itself the ideology that they all follow is to blame for the murder. Here's what he wrote to Edward Ingersoll Esquire on September 22, 1831. John Quincy Adams says, Dear Sir, I gave you in my last letter a list of nine crimes among the most atrocious that can be perpetrated by human agency, committed in the original transactions connected with what has been by an exceedingly inappropriate euphony called the abduction and murder of William Morgan. Abduction is a word of lamb-like innocence compared with the ingredients of wickedness which compose the crime of his taking off. Language sinks under the effort to express its complicated malignity. 
These crimes, I allege, were committed by the fraternity. They were instigated by no impulse of individual passions, by none of the stimulants to the ordinary outrages of man upon man, by no personal animosity, by no purpose of robbery. They were the crimes of the craft, of which the guilty agents by whom they were consummated were but the fanatical instruments. And here I pray you to remark that I have stated these crimes interrogatively. I have inquired of you whether they were not the crimes committed to those transactions. To the end, that if you find upon inquiry that I have set them down incorrectly or with exaggeration, you may reduce them in number or in virulence to their just and well-proportioned standard. I charge them upon the craft as the means by which public notice had been given beforehand that the fraternity had amply provided against his designs. In these crimes, several hundreds of persons appear to have participated as principles or accessories before or after the fact. The measure were taken not individually, but as a result of corporate deliberation in sundry lodges. Mr. Minor, one of the most amiable and benevolent of men, has mistaken the term of the anti-Masonic proposition. There are no doubt degrees of exasperation of different temperature among the anti-Masons, but I know of none disposed to hold that every individual Mason responsible for the tragedy of Morgan's murder. All know that there are now, as there always have been, Masons among the most respectable and virtuous members of the community, but they belong to a vicious institution, and it is their duty to withdraw from that institution, to abolish it, or to purify it from its vices, oaths, penalties, and secrets. The oath, the penalty, the secret, and Morgan's corpse at the bottom of Niagara River, where a shrewd brother of the craft guessed he would publish no more books, are illustrations of each other, which it would take much sophistry to obscure. Jumping to another part of the letter, it says, It has therefore been in my opinion, ever since the disclosure of the Morgan murder crimes and of the Masonic oaths and penalties by which they were instigated, an indispensable duty of the Masonic order in the United States, either to dissolve itself or to discard forever from its constitution and laws, all oaths, all penalties, all secrets, and as a ridiculous appendages to them, all mysteries and pageants. Believing this to be the duty of the whole order, I have deemed it a duty equally indispensable of every individual Mason to use it in calmness and moderation, all his influence with the fraternity to come to one or the other of these results. And I have, since the New York elections of the last autumn, deemed this to be a duty especially and above all incumbent upon Mr. Clay. I mean that he should have set a similar example to that of Washington in endeavoring to prevail upon the order of the Cincinnati to dissolve themselves, or at least to discard the most exceptionable parts of their constitution, in which latter purpose he succeeded. I have not said this to Mr. Clay, because in the estimate of his duties he must be his own counselor, and I know he has had advice from another quarter, which he has doubtless deliberately weighed, but it brings me to a point upon which I shall ask a few minutes further of your patience, for your friend, hereafter, John Quincy Adams. If it wasn't obvious from that quotation, John Quincy Adams, when he's saying Mr. Clay and trying to advise him, he's referring to Henry Clay, 
when he was nominated to be the anti-Masonic party's presidential candidate in the late 1830s. By the mid-1840s, John Quincy Adams was largely known for two things. Well, three things. Becoming president for a short period of time, an unsuccessful president by most people's recollections, and being a virulent anti-Mason. John Quincy Adams was also made famous for pushing abolitionism. But it seems as though he was most passionate about his anti-Masonic views. If you read the totality of the letters in Letters on the Masonic Institution. But even still, here was John Quincy Adams in Congress voting on all the war appropriations during the Mexican-American War while a Masonic president clearly launched a war based on a false pretext as a land grab. And even though he voted against it, he was one of the 14, he still went along with it. Same with Abraham Lincoln. 